Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. On January 24th, 2021, at 1.21 in the morning, it happened. Champlain Towers South, a 12-story condominium in Surfside, Florida, collapsed, claiming the lives of 98 people and injuring many more. It took 12 seconds to collapse. In the investigation afterwards, years of neglect and postponing of much-needed repairs on the pool level may have contributed to the deterioration of the structure. There are also questions about the integrity of the original construction, and we may never know for sure. What we do know is that the collapse was a tragedy that shook many lives in that community and across our country when it happened. And it also ignited a new inspection regulations uh, across our country and, and many other similar structures will hopefully be inspected and save lives in the future. But it doesn't prevent the tragedy of the collapse. We are in a series this Easter looking at three scenes from the life of Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Last week, we saw Peter promise to Jesus that he would never let him down. I would never, Lord. The scene that we read this morning that takes place just a few hours after Peter's bold promise to never let Jesus down shows Peter collapsing spiritually and motionally like a weakened high-rise condominium. For all his good intentions, Peter denies Jesus only a few hours after saying he would go to prison, he would die for him. And it's a tragic story. How can a person's faith and love for Jesus crumble just like that? How did Peter go from hero to zero in just a few hours? If we investigate this collapse together, we will begin to see and to understand the process. And I see six possible steps. I'm going to go really fast through these, so don't think you're going to be here till one o'clock, okay? But will you follow along with me as we go through these six steps together? Now, first, I want to set the stage for you, okay, and give you, set you the background of what happened here in case you're not familiar or just by way of reminder. Jerusalem is a city built on a mountain. The biggest and the highest part of the mountain of Jerusalem was the temple of the God of Israel, a huge complex at the very top of Mount Zion on which Jerusalem is built. 
It included a tower that was a fortress that the Romans occupied at this time. Jerusalem was a walled city. That's how you protected yourself from attack. You built high stone walls so that when your attacker came against you, you could shoot from above. And the temple itself was built right into one of the corners of the walls at its highest point. And then there were big gates in the walls that could be opened and closed and latched to protect against attack. But when the gates were open, then there were stairs down into the valleys below. And directly below the temple wall was a valley called the Valley of Kidron. And in that valley, or just beyond that valley, valley was a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And after Jesus had celebrated the Passover with His disciples in weariness, but in spiritual urgency, He needed to go and pray in quiet in the night, and so He, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while he was praying there, he had asked his disciples to watch with him. His disciple that betrayed him, Judas Iscariot, also knew that this was one of Jesus' favorite gathering places, and he had arranged to bring a guard from the high priest to arrest Jesus there in the night in the garden. And Peter had a small, short sword stuck in his robe, and when they stepped forward to arrest Jesus, he pulled out the knife, stabbed at the guy, missed, and cut off his ear. And Jesus reached out, healed the man's ear, and told Peter to put his sword away. No more fighting tonight, he said. Well, the guard takes Jesus to the house of the high priest. And if Jerusalem was a city built on a mountain with the temple at the top, all the homes of the rich and famous in Jerusalem were built as close to the top as possible, where the high priest would have lived. He was obviously had a very large home because his home not only uh, had a place where he could live, but it had a huge walled-in, gated-in courtyard. And they took Jesus through the courtyard into the house where they tried him there. And this was like the trial before the trial because they're trying out all the charges against Jesus to find what's going to stick so that when the real trial comes, he won't be able to get away because they view Jesus as a threat. The high priest was one of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. He was the head of the Jewish Senate called the Sanhedrin, which was 70 elders, the most prominent leaders in all of the city. And these were gathered to try Jesus at the house of the high priest. In John's biography of Jesus, he says this in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 18, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who knew the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Most likely, the disciple John gets the disciple Peter admitted into the courtyard of the high priest's house which absolutely was no doubt a potentially dangerous place for Peter. 
and his collapse begins as his courage melts to fear. Verses 54 and 55 say, Then they seized him again and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Pretty bold, don't you think? He tried fighting for Jesus, but Jesus told him to stop. Now, after Jesus is arrested, Peter and John follow the soldiers into the courtyard, and Peter is gathered with a bunch of other people. It seems like they're mostly servants, while the important people are inside dealing with Jesus. He had to have been afraid. We all know what it feels like, don't we? that adrenaline shot somewhere deep in your gut that tells you you're not safe. Be careful. Be afraid. Watch yourself. Fear is one of the most natural and primal of human emotions. It is a physical and an emotional warning signal And it's not necessarily a bad thing either, is it? It can let us know when danger is approaching so that we can make adjustments. Even in a soldier, a war-hardened soldier, there is a healthy dose of fear and adrenaline that charges his or her system and makes them careful and wise about their surroundings. Fear is a warning system. And no doubt, Peter's warning system was flashing by the time he entered the courtyard. Well, what would happen next? His fear led to self-protection, verses 55 through 57. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was with him also. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Now Peter has a problem. He's been spotted. He was hoping just to kind of hang out and hopefully catch some news about his master, but people are, are looking at him and saying, What are you doing here? Are you one of his disciples? And immediately... Peter's self-protection mode kicks in. He's in danger. He's in the enemy camp, and he's suspected of being an enemy, and now he has to run for cover. He has to protect himself, and this is where it gets tricky. It's not always wrong to want to protect yourself, but it could be. When it gets tricky is when you begin to compromise your values or your beliefs in order to protect yourself. When you're doing something you wouldn't normally do because you're afraid of try- and you're trying to protect yourself, we can lie because of fear. We can say no because of fear. We can say yes because of fear. We can avoid because of fear. And sometimes these responses are wrong because we are compromising ourselves and our own personal integrity. And that's when fear becomes a problem. 
Peter is asked if he is one of Jesus' followers, and he says, no, I am not. And his self-protection mode changes him into someone that he doesn't want to be. And next what happens is his self-protection erodes his faith. Look at verses 58 through 60 again. And a little later, someone else said to him, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man is one of them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. In Matthew's biography of Jesus, chapter 26, verse 72, it says that Jesus began to swear that he, he didn't know, or Peter began to swear that he didn't know Jesus. Most likely, this is like when somebody says, I swear to God, I don't know Him. Or we would say, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I didn't do it. But Peter swearing to God that he's not a disciple of Jesus. His desire to protect himself is eroding away at his faith. He has denied Jesus in order to protect himself. Now, we can understand this because he's in a very, very dangerous situation. But he is the one who put himself in that situation, and now he is totally going against everything that he believes to be true. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that goes something like this. An alcoholic may go any place that he or she wants to go as long as he or she is spiritually fit to go there. What this means is that if a person has worked on their sobriety and gone through the 12 steps and experienced a spiritual awakening so that they are able to say no to their drug of choice, out of the strength and the humility and the security of their sobriety, they may be able to enter into regular society and live their lives. So, if an alcoholic goes to a wedding or a party with friends and is in a safe place spiritually, he or she will be in a safe place even if they are surrounded by alcohol or those who are drinking it. But if he's not in a safe place spiritually, he won't be safe there. Peter may have seemed bold to follow Jesus into the courtyard, but he didn't have the spiritual strength to face the trial. He broke faith because he was too confident in himself. He wasn't fit for the trial. He was too cocky, and all of that pride came before a fall. And this is a risk that we can all fall into, but it, it's, it's often a flaw of young people. Young people can have too high an opinion of themselves and of their own strength to resist wrong and to resist sin. And they put themselves 
and compromising positions, just like Peter put himself in a compromising position, and then they're surprised and shocked to realize that they don't have the internal strength to resist the temptations and the trials that they've gotten themselves into. And when we start compromising our faith in order to protect ourselves out of fear, we're losing the battle and we're on our way to collapse. Well, his lapse in faith gives way to denial. In Mark's biography of Jesus, chapter 14, verse 71, it says Jesus bega- or Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of what you speak, of whom you speak. He's been asked twice, and he's denied Jesus twice, and yet people don't believe him. And one of the dead giveaways, we're told, is that he was a Galilean. Well, how did they know he was a Galilean? If you look at the, the um, a map of the ancient Israel, it looks a little bit like the state of New Hampshire. It's long and skinny and a little fatter on the bottom, Okay. And the bottom part of Israel, the south, was where Jerusalem was, the capital of Israel, and that was the, the epicenter of the Jewish faith and Jewish politics and everything there. Now, if you were to go north into the middle, that area was called Samaria, where a half-breed of Jews lived that were not loved by anyone, either from below or above. And then in northern Israel, where, Je- where Jesus and Peter were from, from the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee... That area was also part of Israel, but they were kind of like the second-class Israelites. And here's the thing. It was like they were from Boston. They had an accent. Whoa. (laughs) Peter had a Galilean accent, and the people knew he was from Galilee. There was no hiding it. And so... The third time Peter denied Jesus, he calls a curse down on himself and he swears. It might have sounded something like, may God judge me if I'm lying, I don't even know the man. And he has broken faith altogether. His courage has melted into fear, his fear into self-protection. His self-protection has eroded his faith and he's just denied his faith. Now Now he's just a betrayer. You know, he didn't start the day thinking that he was going to deny Jesus. He promised Jesus he would never do that. But now he had. And people walk away from their faith quite a bit. There may even be somebody who's listening who's done it. Perhaps you never intended to do it either but somehow it happened. And you turned away. And you wonder, how did I ever get there? And your tower of faith collapsed, and you're staring at the rubble brokenhearted. Peter's denial resulted in guilt. We see this in verses 60 through 62. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. After he denies Jesus the third time and hears the rooster crow the second time, it's like an alarm went off in his head. <clears throat> and he goes, oh, yeah, Jesus told me this was going to happen. And Luke includes the detail that the Lord Jesus looked at Peter just as he did this. It's, it's hard to know what this could mean. Could Jesus actually see Peter from within the high priest's house? It seems like Peter had moved a little farther away from center to try to get away from the cluster of people so he wouldn't be recognized. But Peter perhaps just felt Jesus looking at him as the rooster crowed. And now he realizes the consequences of his actions. He is guilty. He has denied the Lord. Each and every sin in some way denies the Lord. Even if we are to love Him, God, first and foremost, but we think something or we say something or we do something that harms another person, we are denying our Lord who calls us to love others as He has loved us. And the only fitting response to guilt is to run to the Lord for forgiveness, to ask Him to forgive, to ask Him to take away our sin, to ask Him to change us, to ask Him to cleanse us and, 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 and purify us from within, to ask Him to somehow change us from the way that we are, maybe, maybe from habitually through all of our lives and come into our brokenness and, and, and cause us to be different from the inside out. And when you think about it, at this point in the story, Peter didn't fully have that option. He didn't understand the fullness of all that Jesus came to do. It hadn't happened yet. We know that Jesus died and rose again to redeem us, but Peter didn't really know this yet. So his struggle is going to continue. And what we see is guilt can ignite shame. We're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly. His heart was broken because he let Jesus down and he said that he wouldn't do it. Jesus said he would. Peter determined to prove him wrong. But instead, Peter did exactly what Jesus predicted. He was not strong. He was a failure. He was crippled with a sense of loss and shame. Now, the text doesn't go into detail about this, but I would like to make a point spiritually at least, if I might. When we do something wrong, we may feel guilt. And when you feel guilty, that's a good thing because 
you can do something about that. You can seek to reconcile with the person that you've harmed. Or, and then you can go to God and ask for forgiveness for sinning against Him. But shame, shame is different. Shame is this crippling feeling, not only of having done something wrong, but this overcoming sense of failure and self-condemnation that I just am wrong. I didn't just do something bad. I am bad and unworthy and unclean. Shame is self-loathing and a form of condemnation that there is no love for me. There is no grace for me. There is no hope for me. Shame is this feeling of badness that drives me to despair and to complete hopelessness. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul talks about two different kinds of of, of spiritual sadness or grief. He talks about godly grief and he talks about worldly grief. And this is how he describes it. He says in chapter 7, verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a kind of godly grief that when you are guilty, you may turn to God and repentance brings forgiveness and with it cleansing and with it hope. But when you are guilty and you don't repent, it leads to shame and it leads to death. And you're left to carry around on your shoulders the burden of your wrong and it stays with you and it haunts with you and you find no relief from it. It's just another burden that you carry that weighs down your heart. And we see from the rest of the story, like when Judas, after Judas had betrayed Jesus, he goes out and what does he do? He takes his own life for the power of the grief and shame that is on his shoulders. And shame can do that to a person who has no hope that God could ever care for them. And since Peter didn't yet know the joy of repentance in Jesus, I suspect he was weighed down with grief until after the resurrection as well. It's interesting in John's biography of Jesus, chapter 21, what does Peter do? He goes back to fishing. He was a fisherman by trade and he goes back to his old trade. Had he given up? Was he going back to his old way of life? His guilt crippled him to shame based the response of living for nothing other than his old way of life again. So what do you think? Am I psychologizing the, too much from the scene in Peter's life? Or do you see the collapse with me? He goes from confidence to fear, from fear to self-protection, from self-protection to a lapse in his faith, from lapsing to denying his Lord, from denial to guilt, and from guilt to shame. I think we see these things here in the life of Peter. And it happened so quickly. 
like the fall of a condominium building in the middle of the night. The internal structure was weakened, and down he came. I look at Peter's fall, and I think to myself, I could have done that. I probably would have. As a matter of fact, in, in different ways, I have. What about you? You ever compromised your faith in a moment of fear and self-protection? You ever felt Jesus turn and look at you as you did something wrong and you knew you're doing it? I want you to think with me about Jesus turning and looking at you when you have wronged and denied Him or wronged and harmed somebody else. What is going on when you see Jesus looking at you? Because how you think or feel about Jesus looking at you could mean different things. Some of you, when Jesus looks at you in your sin, you go deeper into shame. And Jesus' eyes are eyes of accusation. He sees your wrong and He judges your heart as dirty, worthless, and unclean. And when Jesus looks at you, you recoil and spiral down into greater depths of shame and self-loathing. But when Jesus looks at us, it could mean something else. It may be a look of compassion. It may be a look of mercy. It may from a, come from a heart that wants something much, much better for you than sin and shame. It may be a look that says, I am going to the cross for you. I know you've failed. I know you're crushed. I know you're empty, afraid, alone, and broken. And this is me giving myself for you. You have denied me, yes, but I will not deny you. I love you. Trust me. Believe I will take your sin upon myself. Believe that I love you enough to carry away your guilt and shame. Believe that I died and rose again so that you may never have to run from my love. The look of Jesus may be a look of mercy or a look of shame. The difference is really about the condition of your heart and your willingness to receive the mercy of Jesus. Just a reminder, we have a Let's Connect card. If you're here first time, second time, third time, 
I'd like to get to know you. But you can also write on that card, shame or mercy. If you'd like me to pray for you, you can drop that in the offering plate. When we lapse in our faith, shame destroys us. And it drives us deeper and deeper and deeper into hopelessness. But mercy, mercy lifts us out of the mire and it sets us free to enjoy God's love and forgiveness in the cross of Christ, which is what we're going to do today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as your eyes are upon us, having given yourself for us, I ask that you would reveal to each and every one here your mercy, your grace, your tenderness, your compassion, and the hope that only you can give. And I pray this in your name, risen Jesus. Amen.